So 11,000 days, 30 years of walking with Jesus. And again, your story matters and has redemptive value. God is truly for you. Jesus plus nothing equals completion. We'll never understand and comprehend the power of God's grace. I want to share with you a few principles today to build on what we've already established. Principle number one would be this. Obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off of your goal. That was a principle that was cemented in my heart way back in 1985. I got this little uh, card, and it had that quote on it. And I remember writing that quote down going, hold on, that's a powerful thing. Why is it, why is it so powerful? I think I told you that my buddy Walter came alongside of me and, and really got me into the Word. And one of the first verses I memorized was this 2 Corinthians 11.3 of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And as I started walking with Jesus, I was in a church where the worship pastor's wife was hitting on a few dudes, and I thought that was jacked up only to find out that the worship pastor himself was leaving his wife for another guy, which I thought was really jacked up. And I'm like, man, I've had enough of this stuff. I'd only been in church for about five months. Anybody ever been into a church and all of a sudden all hell starts breaking loose and pin to tell on the funky is all about you? And I was about ready to throw the towel in and Walter goes, oh, 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 hold on. Who did you place your faith in? And I said, Jesus. He said, did you place your faith in the risen king or in human beings? The middle verse of the Bible says it's better to trust in the Lord than it is to put confidence in man. Walter put his arm around me and said, let's memorize 2 Corinthians 11.3. I'm afraid that just as the serpent tempted Eve with his craftiness, that your minds would be led astray from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He said, why don't we do this? Why don't just me and you drive a stake in the ground and declare that the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is going to be what we're about? I'm like, all right, dude, I'm in. And, and, and I'm telling you, that is where it was almost solidified at a deeper level for me to focus on Christ and not on people. Jesus is not going to let me down, but people will. Living a life of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ must be our ultimate goal. Whose ultimate goal? Every person in this room. What is your purpose for existence? To know God, enjoy God, and glorify God. Thus, everything is about him. What happens to us, though, is we do life, is we start to empower certain obstacles in our life that take our focus off of the king. When we're Focusing on Jesus and worshiping Jesus and in the word, you're still going to have turmoil and tribulation and tests and trials come your way. But the peace of Christ is almost so rooted and established that you're able to walk through it. But it's when you start looking at all these obstacles. So let me, let me, let me tell you what I mean by this. Isaiah 26.3, one of my favorite verses says, God will keep in perfect peace those who trust in him, those whose minds are fixed on him. Did you hear that? God desires to keep each and every person here in perfect peace, but it only happens when you trust him and your mind is fixed on him. Paul would say, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Whatever is pure, right, holy, lovely, and excellent, praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. Once I realize that fixing my thoughts on Jesus and becoming mindful of Jesus pretty much 24-7 
Did you ever shipwreck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever derail? Yeah. But the North Star and the focal point of my life was walking with Jesus. When that happened, those obstacles no longer became barriers that took me down. Here's some practical stuff. I would challenge you with all your heart, much like my conversation this week with my friend Taylor, I would challenge you, cry out to Jesus and surrender everything that you have to him. Allow Jesus to be the center of your life. When Jesus Christ is the center of your life and he comes in and starts to champion your heart, here's what he's going to do. People say, I'm just trying to get closer to God, Tim. How can I get any closer to him when he resides within me? I want to be more full of him. I want to be more filled with him. But, but how do I get closer to him? It's when I start to allow him to say, hey, 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 live your life out through me in my personal life. Live your life out through me in my family life. Live your life out through me in my community of which I find myself living. Live your life out through me, Jesus, in my church life, in my work life. Wherever I am, would you please just live your life out through me? When that starts to happen, you're going to find a new level of freedom. There you will know that Christ has become king. But obstacles then will start to to pale in comparison to the object of your affection, which has given you peace in your soul. Here would be another thing I would say. Have a deep desire to know God in his word. Worship him. Get into the word daily. I mean, I've had people ask me over the last week, where do I start? I'm like, read Proverbs. There's 31 of them. Read one every day. Get into the purpose-driven life and start to get some foundation there. Go through the gospel of John and journal. There's all kind of places we can help you start. You've just got to want to stay with it. But I've got to really want to know God. And once I want to know God, I want to know his word. Here's another one. Live with eternity as the backdrop. If we ever come to the realization that we're only camping right now, this ain't home. We're going to spend eternity forever and ever infinite with the king. We may get 70, maybe 80, maybe whatever, 50 years. Whatever we get here, we get. But it's a small part of where we're really ultimately going. If I live with, the, uh, with eternity as the backdrop, I don't, I don't pack real heavy for right now. I learned to travel light. I learned to get rid of a lot of stuff that I don't need, which ain't just materialistic stuff. I'm talking about attitude stuff and toxic relationship stuff, somebody. Come on. And so if you started living your life with eternity as the backdrop, it would eliminate a lot of obstacles. Here's another one. Learn to live with humility. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. This is a way to simplify your life. Humility will open more doors for you than arrogance. Your talent and your abilities may give you an audience, but humility is what gives you ministry. Now, just because I can, my buddy Mitch came in here today. I hadn't seen Mitch since last February. Mitch is an interesting dude for me. Now, let me tell you why this matters, this point here of your humility gives you ministry. Mitch came out of high school and went to the Naval Academy. Didn't have this prepped. I just saw him. I'm going to tell his story. But he went to the Naval Academy. He played four years of college baseball at the Naval Academy. Part of the deal is after your second year, Air Force, Navy, or whatever, you have to pledge on whether you're going to stay there or not. And if you do pledge, you've got to serve five years serving the country. 
So he stayed there his four years, finished. When he came out, he got drafted to play professional baseball by the Cardinals. He'd already been drafted, but he got drafted again. So he goes and he's like, what's the chance of me playing pro ball? He has signed a commitment. He has signed a commitment to the Navy. He serves five years on a ship. He travels throughout the world. All of a sudden, when he gets out, he signs with the Cardinals. Is he very good when he signs? No, he hasn't played in five years. But he works his, his, his way back into the game. And Mitch Harris, this past May, got called up to the big leagues and was the first dude from the Naval Academy in 94 years to play in the major leagues. But let me tell you what, what has ministered to me. And so his story got national attention. His story was reported by Fox and MLB, and you name the network. I read all these stories. I saw all these interviews. Here was the thing that was so impressive. Not that he had made it to the big leagues, but the dignity and humility with the way he carried himself. Your, your giftedness and your talents may give you a platform, but humility will give you audience to really be able to minister. Here, here's another thing is, as I eliminate these obstacles, I got to remember that I'm playing for an audience of one. Here would be another thing I would say. Learn to live with what you need, not what you want. If you can learn to live with the simplistic basics that you really need and eliminate a lot of your wants, you won't go in bondage. My one buddy was telling me before, praise the Lord, brother. We closed on this house. Our mortgage has gone from 2700 down to about 1100 I'm like, really? He goes, we made some stupid choices way back, which really is to say he made some stupid choices way back. <laughs> I'll take care of his wife. But when you start to acquire, when you start to acquire everything you obtain, you feel an obligation to maintain. If you're not careful, you get way too much on your plate and you can't live a simplistic life before Christ. Here would be another one. Love your family with all that you are, not with all that you can buy them. Learn to love your family with all that you are. Give them your heart. Give them your time. Give them your energy. In your bulletin, you'll see this. Define what really matters. What really matters? When the sun goes down at the end of the day, what matters? And then, then over the next days, fill this in. Like to me, a simple life means blank. How would you complete that? If I was going to really live a simple life, what would that look like? If I were to simplify my life, I would be free to do what? Well, I mean, what is, what, what is weighing me down? I would, be, I would be free to go on mission trips. I would be free to serve at the mission. I would be free to, what, what would it be? Last thing would be this. What is keeping me from simplifying my life? What are the things right now on my plate, in my life, uh, financial obligations, all this other junk that we can accumulate, what is on my plate that's freeing me from being who God wants me to be? And, and, and really being freed up to serve him. Here would be a second one. So obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off your goal. Number two is the unscripted life is the only one worth living. When, when we try to script our journey and tell God what our story is going to look like, and when we start to write in our diary and bring it to God and ask him to sign his name to it, when we try to write our story in advance, it doesn't work. The Cinderella syndrome girls does not work. It doesn't work. Hey, guys, marrying the perfect 10 doesn't work because she's marrying a perfect bozo and you're going to mess her up before she can be a 10. It doesn't work. 
There's a lot of fallacy and reasoning that we buy into. The unscripted life is the only one really worth living. What do you mean by that? When, When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he calls us to live by faith, not by agenda, not by strategy and solutions. So many people have factored God out and the Holy Spirit out of their journey because they've already told God what their life is going to look like. Be careful. When you start to live by faith, you can live in a way that would please God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It says in verse 2 that by faith, men of old gained approval with God. Verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to God must believe that he is the great I am and he will reward those who diligently seek him. What is the journey for us? It's to live by faith. Even the writer of Corinthians, Paul would say, we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, what does that require? It requires that, me, that, that I have to crucify me and I have to crucify my self-centeredness and my control and my manipulation and my domination as I do life. I, I can't have two masters and two lords ruling my life. The throne on my heart is only big enough for one and I'm not the one that's supposed to be there. It's supposed to be Jesus. So what, so what do you mean by stepping out and living by faith? A lot of great stories for me. I'll hit you with a couple. Uh, Back in June of 1990, I contacted Barb, my wife, for the very first time. I was giving her phone number. I called her. And so I called Barb. We talked on the phone this one night back in June of 1990. We get ready to hang up, and I said, Barb, would you mind if I prayed with you before we hang up? And she said, that would be great. So I prayed with her. And so I said, do you mind if I call you again tomorrow? So I called her again tomorrow, and I said, Barb, great talking to you. Do you mind if I pray with you before we hang up? She said, I would love for you to pray with me before we hang up. So we do this, and we talk about five times a week. I'm speaking at this outreach. I come back that night after speaking at this outreach, and this is only a long-distance phone call relationship. But I'm all fired up about what the Lord's doing in my life, and I get on my face, and I'm like, if this is the girl I'm supposed to marry, let her call me in the next 60 seconds. And the phone rang, and I was so scared. It rang like 30 seconds later, and I'm like, oh, my God. But I couldn't page her and text her and email her because those things didn't exist 25 years ago. So I'm like, okay. All right. So I I lay down that night after talking with her, and I'm like, Lord, I just talked to my wife. I want to marry that girl. We had never seen each other, and believe me, when we did, I got the better end of that stick as well. But I had something going on for me. So we start this dialogue, and we see each other seven weeks later. I'm speaking up in Syracuse, New York. And I look at her, and I said, Barb, God has shown me you're going to be my wife. And she's like, God has shown me you're going to be my husband. I'm like, really? I've never to this day asked her to marry me. That's all I said to her. And that's what she said back to me. I didn't read Emily Post. I'm not in all that. But, and so, so, so. Anyway, she tells me later, she goes, the night that you called me for the first time and we hung up, I called my best friend and said, you're not going to believe it. And her friend said, what? She goes, I just talked to my husband. And she goes, what are you talking about? 
And she then tells me later, she goes, Tim, I'd always prayed, Lord, let the man that I'm going to marry pray with me. I didn't have to be good looking. I just had to pray. (laughs) How cool. But then I told her about that phone call that night after I was laying in the floor. And I said, Barb, I believe by faith God said you're going to be my wife. And I said, so when do you want to get married? She's like, when do you want to get married? I said, how about December? Well, we didn't start talking until June and didn't meet each other until really the end of June. And she goes, that would be beautiful. I said, well, let's find a date. Then she tells me later that she had already, just a couple of weeks into our phone conversations, picked out these poinsettias, Christmas-like wedding invitations, because she said, I'm going to be married to this guy before Christmas. But she never told me that. She didn't manipulate me. The Holy Spirit confirmed that on me as well. That was a faith step. Benji's four years old. We're in Hilton Head, South Carolina. We used to go there every year and do this week of champions. Had a lot of fun. I think he was four, not 11 on this story. It'll make sense when I tell it. But he's four years old, and uh, we go down to the beach. We hang out at the pool. We're having a fun day, and we go up to grab lunch. We have an incredible lunch time, and we're kind of kicking back. And so we go back to the pool, and we're going to have fun. I go over to the pool, and I jump into the deeper end. It's probably six foot of water there. And so Benji and Barb and the other ones are playing around in the shallow end. and the kiddie pool area, there's more. And then all of a sudden, after about 10 minutes, Benji comes over to where I'm at at the deep end, standing on the side of the pool. And he goes, Dad, Dad. I'm like, what, buddy? He goes, you got to go back up to the room. Why? I left my armbands, and I can't swim. You've got to go back and get my armbands. I want to get in the water down here with y'all, Dad. Go get the armbands. And I'm like, I'm not going to get those armbands. And he was not happy. And I said, I'm not going to get those armbands. But I can't get in. I don't know how to swim. I've got to have my armbands. And I said, Benji, Benji, do me a favor. I want you to come over to the edge of the pool. And I want you to look at me. And I'm about seven feet away from him. And I said, Benji, I want you to jump in. I can't, Dad. I don't know how to swim. I don't have my armbands on. Benji, look at me. Look at me. I want you to jump. But I don't want you to trust your ability to swim. I want you to trust Daddy's ability to catch you. Just trust Daddy's ability to catch you. And that little dude stood at the edge and jumped. He surrendered his will. He, he, he didn't worry about what he couldn't do. He just focused on what he trusted. And I think a lot of times in our journey, God calls us to do things, and we look at our ability and skill set and say, I can't do it. And God goes, I'm not asking you if you can swim. I'm asking you if you believe that I have the ability to catch you. And so he jumps. And do you know, I let him go, and he swam to the edge and back, and by 20, 25 minutes later, he was swimming from one side to the other. Every time he would do it, he'd go, Dad, 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 I'm right here, I got my eye on you. And then by the time we left Hilton Head, I could sit on the edge of the pool, and he goes, I'm okay, I'm okay. Where did it start? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. And, and your journey really changes when you find yourself standing on the edge of the pool and you refuse to trust your ability 
But you start to trust the one who made you and say, just jump. I'm, I'm able to do something with you if you'll trust me. But the unscripted life is the only one worth living. You don't know where I'm going to take you. And my sister Amanda has an incredible testimony of how God's been working in her life. Amanda's a part of our church here. And I asked Amanda a few weeks ago, I said, you know, your story matters and has redemptive value. Would you share it with us? So give it up for my friend Amanda. Patrick. Okay. Had to make sure it was on. Um, thank you, everyone, for allowing me the time to share, to come up here and share with you. When Pastor Tim first asked me to share my testimony, I really had to sit and think, um, what would I talk about? Because for the longest time when people would talk about their testimonies, I didn't think I had one. I really questioned if I was truly saved or not. You know, you see, I grew up going to church. I, went, I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic school, kindergarten through eighth grade. And I knew a lot about religion, but I did not know very much about God. And unfortunately, you know, my young mind was, I just had the wrong perception of heaven and God. You know, heaven was, to me, some exclusive club that was impossible to get into. Um, it was nearly, I mean, unless you were a saint, you didn't get in. So that left purgatory or hell. So in my little mind, I thought, why even try, you know? Why even try to get into heaven? And God was some, he's just this looming power over you that was just ready to judge and punish you whenever you did something wrong. So if something bad happened, I just assumed it was a punishment for something I had done wrong. One summer, um, I was going into high school, I was 14, and I went to go visit my aunt in Kentucky, and I did that every summer. And they had started attending a church, and not really sure what type of church it was, but extremely different from what I was used to. They spoke in tongues. They were extremely charismatic in worship, fell on the floor. They, you know, it just really honestly freaked me out. I was very used to the subdued mass, you know. That was what I was comfortable with, you know, hour long, we're good, we're out, eat some donuts. Um, and then, so, I, you know, as I'm observing this, I really have no idea. I'm not paying attention to what they're saying. Um, you know, I'm just thinking, if this is what it's like to, you know, to have Jesus in your life, to worship him, I'm not really sure I want to do this. And um, one night, my aunt sat me down and asked me if I wanted to go to heaven. Well, yeah, I do. So, you know, that was my main goal in life, was to get to heaven. And you know, so she said, all you have to do is say this prayer. You know, you have to repent. You have to let Jesus in your life, and you'll go to heaven. So I said it mainly out of fear. I was so scared of going to hell that I just wanted anything. I was going to grab at anything. And really, I said it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I thought if I said this, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm just going to go to heaven. And looking back, I realized I was so focused on a destination that I never even thought about a journey or a walk with God. Um, a personal relationship with Jesus was so foreign to me. I had never heard of that. And so, you know, I got home, back um, high school started, and I did very little to develop my walk with God. Um, I read the Bible, but I didn't, under I didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. It didn't pertain to me, I didn't think. So I stopped. Um, 
just didn't even try it. I would pray every now and then, mainly to get me out of trouble. Um, you know, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise. And a couple of years into high school, I fell into the wrong crowd. Um, I guess you shouldn't say fell. That means I didn't knowingly do it. I knowingly got into the wrong crowd. Um, they see, they seemed like they were having more fun. And, you know, they were the ones always out partying and having fun. But what I didn't see is how I was going to feel after the fun stopped, um, after the fun was over, how lonely and empty and dead I was going to feel. You know, but I continued to spiral out of control. I abused drugs and alcohol, just was very promiscuous and just really just got out of control. And one night, or it was one weekend actually, wasn't a night, I hit a rock bottom that I thought would never happen to me. I was 17, and it was right before the end of my junior year. I should have been very, I should have been looking forward to the summer, what I was going to do, but I found myself sitting in a jail cell. And I was extremely ashamed of myself and extremely just angry almost at God for allowing me to get into this position. And I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew what I was doing was not the right way. I was raised better. My mom was, I could just imagine what she was thinking during that time. But um, fast forward a few years, I grew up, I straightened up, but still led an extremely sinful life. And I, during those years, I became a hairdresser, got married, and I still identified with the party girl mentality. I wanted to be the fun one. And even though after, like in high school, once the fun was over, there was just emptiness and just a dead feeling inside. So I needed to do more. I needed to crave more. I didn't know how to be fun without alcohol. So that's why I continued to do that. Um, but we had our first daughter, and we decided as a family to start going to church together. And after some debating, we found the cross. We were going to church shop, but then this was the only one, and it kind of stuck. So that was five years ago, and that's not where my journey stops. We sat in the shadows for three years, didn't want to commit to God, didn't want to commit to ourselves, didn't want to commit to the church. I was in and out as soon as... As soon as the lights were up, I was gone, and um, it, I can only, you know, thank God for this, but through some divine intervention, we were um, interrupted, and we got connected to a small group, and that's where we started really diving deeper into our relationship with God, and I remember sitting every Sunday, even after that, um, that was two years ago, that we started going to small groups, every Sunday that I would sit in here, I would pray for God to take my life, you know, to give my life over to God again, just because I just said it every single Sunday, waiting for this feeling to wash over me, to, you know, have this all-consuming fire take over my body that I thought that was the feeling of being saved, and it never happened, and um, so I was like, okay, am I really saved? I go to church, I do this, but, um, you know, so I was craving a deeper relationship with God, and so I started getting deeper into the word, really reading devotionals and doing Bible studies. And one day I was reading this devotion, and it was talking about being a closet Christian. And I really, I almost couldn't read the whole thing. I had to, you know, really force myself to read it. And it was talking about how, you know, from the outside, people will never know you're a Christian. 
you know, you have your church life, you're, you volunteer at church, you do these things, which I was, I was in, you know, I volunteered at nursery, I was a good little Christian, and, but no one on the outside knew that, none of my friends knew, I had really changed on the inside, that I really didn't want to be the party girl anymore, um, I didn't associate with that, you know, lifestyle anymore, and so after forcing myself to finish reading it, and I, I questioned, why is this bothering me so, so much? And I read it a few more times over the next few weeks, the following weeks, and, you know, just I prayed about it, and, you know, God finally revealed to me that that is who you are. You are a closet Christian. That is what's holding you back. And so then I was like, okay, what do I do about that, you know? Um, and he didn't, you know, say, update your Facebook status. But I knew that was the most public and the quickest way to get it out there. And so one day I was like, and actually, so I always have an inner dialogue with God. I don't know if anybody else is like this, but I'm constantly talking to him in my head. And so, you know, we were going back and forth for a week or so. And I finally decided to do it. I just sat down and just wrote it all out. And I probably stared at the screen for a good 10 minutes before I hit the submit button. I probably blacked out a little bit after that. Um, and I will tell you, that is probably the only day that I have not, I was not like constantly looking to, you know, my, updating my Facebook to see what was going on. But um, I was so scared at the reaction of what I would, how I would, re, you know, be received. And even, I was pleasantly surprised, which I guess I'm not giving my friends and family enough credit, but, you know, the outpouring of love from everyone, even my non-believer friends, you know, they just... They, they welcomed me. They loved me. And so I look back, and maybe that is the day that I fully surrendered. Um, but I, you know, I question that just because my cha- not all my chains were broken. I still carried so much shame and guilt from my past. And to say that I was a Christian, I felt like a fraud because of my past, because I carried all that with me. It was like a backpack on my bag, on my back all the time. And so finally, you know, I, I just was talking to God, and I was like, why? Why did this happen to me? Why did I have to go through that? Why did I have to just abuse, abuse myself and just really not care? And, you know, finally, I understood it. It's because I was trying to find my worth in other things other than him. You know, I was trying to put a puzzle together, and I kept putting the wrong piece of the puzzle in and it wouldn't fit, and then I finally found that right puzzle piece, and that was Christ, and once I locked him in, the picture became clearer of what my life was supposed to be like, and once I finally figured out and let go of my past and forgave myself of my past, one more chain was broken, and I was a little bit freer that day, and so, you know, if I really also questioned, you know, what can I do? If I had to go through that, then maybe I can help one person. If my story can help one teenager from stopping before they even start down that path, then it was worth it. All the pain and just abuse to myself was worth it if I can stop one more teenager from going down that path. And so maybe that was the day I fully surrendered. But all I know is that I know I am saved. Because I, I don't have this overwhelming, consuming fire in my soul, but I have an inner peace. I know who I belong to. I am a child of Christ. 
And so I can confidently say I am his and I am saved. Thank you. That is so huge. First time in front of a group like this sharing your testimony. It's not easy. But you are a child of God. And that's a beautiful thing. Any, anybody struggle with really believing that God has forgiven your past? Anybody struggle with really believing that you can forgive yourself? I guarantee you all of us sit there in that same boat at times really wanting to believe that his blood and his grace and his mercy is enough, but all of us still struggling at times, feeling like it is part of our responsibility to pick up the ruins of our wretchedness of yesterday and carry them around. But whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Your story matters and has redemptive value. God has been chasing all of your hearts in here. God wants to do something Here's what I would say. Obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off your goal. She's gotten her goal right now, her and Jeremy. The unscripted life, living by faith, believing one day at a time, it's the only life worth living. Let me give you a third principle. Authentic salvation will lead to sanctification. Don't miss this one. Authentic salvation will lead to sanctification. A person that is truly born again will start to experience supernatural change because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We talked, praying a prayer at 14 years old to avoid hell, I didn't meet Jesus. Praying a prayer at 13 for me, I didn't meet Jesus. But when I met Jesus and asked Jesus to come in and champion my life and save my soul and I repented, I am confident of this very thing that he who begins the good work is faithful to complete it. Now, now here's the thing. True, authentic salvation is going to lead to sanctification. Let me tell you what I mean by this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 10 says, Adulterers and fornicators and effeminate and homosexuals and thieves and liars. And it, it lists a lot of stuff. And then he says this. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. I'm in that such were some of you group. But, circle that word, but, there's three big buts right here in this passage. But you were washed. The blood of the Savior has come down and totally washed you and made you new. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. God has washed you. What is he talking about? But you have experienced salvation. You've been delivered from the ruins of your sinful lifestyle, and you've been delivered into the loving arms of the Savior. Remember, such were you, some of you, but you, you've been washed. But, he goes on to say, You've been sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. It means to be made holy. Not only did I wash you, but, but in this world of all these other lives, I took you and I set you back here for my own good pleasure. When, when you got saved, God 
What he was doing in your life was not only washing you, but he was desiring to pull you out of the world and sanctify you and set you apart so that he could use you and he could love on you the way he wanted to. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Which means now when I look at you, the word justified means to be declared righteous by God. This is huge. This is huge. When I look at you, I washed you. When I look at you, I set you apart. When I look at you, I just want you to know that I only see your life through the blood of my son. You are declared righteous once and for all. A person that understands this doesn't want to continue to live in sin, doesn't want to raise hell and try to get their needs met apart from Christ. A person that gets this goes, the God of all creation looks at me as washed, saved, yes. Sanctified, yes, set apart. Justified, totally declared righteous. Yes, that's how he sees you. But, but we do life, every one of us, we get up in the morning and we do life usually in one of three ways. We get up in the morning and we look in the mirror, and as we look in this mirror, we allow this declaration statement to be made to us as we start our day, as we look in one again throughout the day, as we go to bed at night, as we brush our teeth, look in the mirror. We, 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 we see ourselves in one of three ways. All of us do. So you can look in the mirror, even maybe after saying that I'm a follower of Christ and I know the Lord. Listen, listen. We can look in the mirror and we can say, Mirror, mirror on the wall, why do you reveal my fall? And you can still see yourself as a sinner who is dirty, who is diseased, who is disturbed, and a lot of people that even go to church still that say, I've prayed, I've asked Christ to save me, I've asked him to fill me with his Holy Spirit. You still see yourself as a stinking sinner. Why do you reveal my fall? I'm no longer a sinner. I'm a saint. Crazy. What made you a saint? Jesus did. So, so you can look and live in defeat. Some people look in the mirror every day and they go, mirror, mirror on the wall. Why do I yield when others call? And you live a life of dependence trying to please everybody around you. And you're still living in defeat. Makes sense. It's like, oh, I just... I, I, I can't let them down. What do you mean let them down? And there's so many codependent enabling style relationships. Galatians 1.10, am I still seeking the approval of man or am I seeking the approval of God? If I was seeking man's approval, I couldn't be God's servant. A lot of people live there and they're living in defeat. Third mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. Jesus' blood has paid it all. If you're looking at life out of mirror one or mirror two, grab a sledgehammer and shatter it. Look at mirror three, embrace mirror three, and the Father says, I've watched you, I love you, you're sanctified, you're justified, you're set apart, I declare you righteous. You want to talk about changing a dude's journey? If you can see yourself as totally clean with God, man, it will change you. Totally 
totally change your life. Last point. I'll deal with adversity next week. Obedience to God is always worth it. I've come to know this in my journey, that obedience to God is always worth it. What are you saying? I'm saying that I've never regretted obeying God. I'm saying that sin is fun for a season, and when I participated in sin and had fun for the season, I regretted the collateral damage that sin brought about in my life. We were talking the other night, and it's like, if you could write a, a letter back to that old you, what would you tell him? If you could write a letter now back to the old you at 17, what would you tell her? If I could write one to me at 20, what would I say? L -l Listen, it's not that fun. You're screwing up a lot. You're missing out on your real purpose. What would you tell that old dude? Because here's what I've come to realize. Since October of 85, 11,000 days, obeying God one day at a time and one step at a time has been worth it. It's been worth it. It's been worth being pure and holy and righteous before Barb. It's been worth showing up every day and wanting to be a daddy and take care of my kids. It's been worth every day getting up and getting in the word. Are you subject to fail as much as anybody in this room? Without the Holy Spirit working in me one day at a time, I can jack it up as much as anybody. Your tassel turn? No. But I'm telling you that one step of obedience at a time has been worth it. That's the reason Solomon would say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. It's a heart issue. It's not a prayer, I said the right word. It's a heart issue. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, which means this. It's not going that good for you to trust how smart you think you are. You're not that smart. It's not going that good for you. Don't lean on your own understanding, which to me implies redneck Loganville. You'll screw it up if you do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Heart in all, in all, in all, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In everything you do, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will keep you on a straight path. He will keep you living a purposeful life. He will keep you walking in peace. When does it happen? It's when I go, I'm going to surrender to you. My buddy Taylor did it this week. I'm surrendering. It's time to make it right. Other conversations have happened this week with the gals ministry, the guys ministry. God is starting to do a renovation of the heart in a lot of people here. Can you force a person to repent? My man Trevor, his uncle, just died here recently. He just got word of it 10 days ago that your uncle's dead. And I lived in Indiana and I reached out to his uncle. And Trevor reached out to his uncle. And Trevor loved his uncle. Trevor's going to be flying back to Indiana next weekend to do a memorial. And we were sitting there talking about how our heart breaks when you know that a person didn't totally just get it and surrender. 
A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. When you surrender your will to the king and he gets your heart, the game changes. Quit playing church. Quit playing the games. Quit playing it and sell out to the king. He's worth following. 